This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to episode 15 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Too many people have the wrong idea about Judaism, and frankly, they have a valid point. They think of Judaism as a downer religion, governed by a theology of victimization that colors Jewish life from year to year. As proof, they point to the number of what could be called victimization fast days that show up on our calendar each year. There are five of them. Then there are two extended periods of mourning. During the seven weeks between the second day of Pesach, Passover, and Shavuot, the period known as Sfirah, or counting, because we count each of the 49 days from the one to the other. And during the period known as the three weeks, which began yesterday, Thursday, July 9th, and will continue through sundown on July 30th this year. This is a period of intensifying mourning each year that comes in the middle of summer, just when people want to enjoy life to the fullest, and it grows even more intense during the last nine days. There is one day of intense mourning during these three weeks that should be observed, the very last day, and in my opinion, that day should be the only one on our calendar, as I'll explain later in this podcast. With that lengthy lead-in, therefore, today's topic is, should this intensifying summertime mourning period even be on our calendar? Let me make this clear at the outset. As I've said often on these podcasts, Judaism is not a religion, it's a way of life how it should be lived, and how it should be celebrated. Judaism has a religious component and a national one, that's true. But being fixated on victimization distorts Judaism's focus on life, bends it all out of shape, and frankly, turns too many people off to what Judaism is really about. God didn't ask for any of it, as you'll hear. In fact, as you'll also hear, rather than fasting to memorialize tragedies, he wants us to live up to our mission to create a better world built on his laws of ethics and morality. In essence, God tells us to forget such fasts and concentrate instead on who and what we're supposed to be, his kingdom of priests and holy nation. That being said, yesterday was one of those five fast days on the Jewish calendar, one of the four so-called minor fasts that crop up during each year. By minor fast is meant that it lasts only during the daylight hours. Yesterday's fast is somewhat different than the others, all of which come and go in a single day and may not be fully observed, even by some of the more ritually observant. Yesterday, though, was different because it marked the start of the period of intensifying mourning known as the three weeks, with the last nine days being the most severe as they lead up to the final day, the gruesome 25-hour fast known as Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. This year, Tisha B'Av begins at sundown on Wednesday, July 29th, and runs until after sundown on the 30th. Tisha B'Av is one of the two major fasts on our calendar, considered major because of its 25-hour length. The other major fast, of course, is Yom Kippur, which has nothing to do with victimization and is in a different category altogether. Let's face it, though, as I said in my lead-in, who wants to go through three weeks of mourning in the middle of summer when, at least in normal times, we'd rather be frolicking outdoors and partying with friends and family beside our backyard barbecues? The quick answer, as far as Tisha B'Av is concerned, is absolutely yes, as I'll explain a bit later. Yesterday's fast, the fast of the 17th of Tammuz, or Shiva Asar B'Tammuz in Hebrew, is quite another matter and so are the three weeks it launches and the nine days that bring it to a close. 
During the three weeks, we're not supposed to listen to music, go to the movies or the theater. Not a concern this year, obviously. Or attend celebrations of any kind other than, say, a baby's breed, which can't be postponed for any reason other than the baby's health. We're also not supposed to cut our hair. For men, that includes not shaving. The nine days involve even more stringent morning rituals, including not eating meat or drinking wine except on Shabbat, not bathing except under very strict guidelines, not doing laundry or wearing new clothes, and according to some, not even wearing clothes that had been pressed. As to why we have these restrictions, some background is required. Other than the fast of Esther, the day before Purim, all the victimization fasts on the calendar relate in some way to the destruction of the two temples and the raising of Jerusalem that followed, all of which came to a head, according to tradition, during these three weeks. Yesterday's fast supposedly marked the breaching of Jerusalem's walls twice in just over 650 years, in 586 BCE and 70 CE. Both times that breach led to the destruction of the temple and the raising of Jerusalem. Notice, though, that I used the word supposedly. While the parallel tragedies did occur, neither traditional date is supported by the Tanakh, by the Bible, or by any external source outside of rabbinic literature. The prophet Jeremiah was an eyewitness to the catastrophes that took place in 586 BCE, but he says twice, in fact, that the walls of Jerusalem that year were breached on the 9th of Tammuz, not on the 17th. And as for the temple's destruction, he says that happened on the 10th of Av, not the 9th. Being an eyewitness, we can assume that he knows best when it all happened, but with regard to the destruction of the first temple, there is a piece of conflicting information in the Tanakh. In the second book of Kings, we're told that the first temple was destroyed on the 7th of Av. Both the Jerusalem and the Babylonian Talmuds, both of which were compiled hundreds of years after the fact, insist the dates we have are the correct ones, and the dates in Jeremiah, and presumably two kings, were the result of errors made by a scribe. That's the background, and that's why the sages instituted this period of mourning, which is not biblical, and if we're to take the word of the prophet Zechariah, God never asked for and has no use for. We do know that these four fast days existed in biblical times because the prophet Zechariah refers to them, including yesterday's fast and Tishabav, but he says nothing about requiring mourning rituals or extending them from one fast to the other. Zechariah does suggest that the days leading to Tishabav were a period of mourning in the years following the destruction of the first temple, at least for some people. But since the exile had ended and the temple was being rebuilt, Zechariah was asked by one petitioner regarding Tishabav, quote, Shall I weep and practice abstinence in the fifth month as I have been doing all these years? Unquote. This is what Zechariah answers in God's name. Quote, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, All these seventy years, did you fast for my benefit? And the word of the Lord to Zechariah continued, Thus said the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice. Deal loyally and compassionately with one another. Do not defraud the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor. And do not plot evil against one another. Unquote. God didn't ask for these fasts or for this period of mourning, Zechariah says. The tragedies occurred because you, Israel, didn't follow the program. You didn't live up to the moral and ethical code God gave you. Fasting and mourning are a waste of time. All God asks of you now, Zechariah says, is to get with that program. In saying that, Zechariah was clearly referencing Isaiah especially. So here's what Isaiah had to say, apparently referring to Yom Kippur, no less. 
Quote, the people ask of God, why, when we fasted, did you not see? When we starved our bodies, did you pay no heed? God answers, is such the fast I desire, a day for people to starve their bodies? Is it bowing the head like a bulrush or lying in sackcloth and ashes? No, this is the fast I desire, to unlock fetters of wickedness and untie the cords of the yoke to let the oppressed go free, to break off every yoke. It is to share your bread with the hungry and to take the wretched poor into your home when you see the naked to clothe him and not to ignore your own kin, unquote. Clearly, except for Yom Kippur, which is all about behavior and doing the very things Isaiah quotes God as saying that we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to be about, what Judaism is all about, except for Yom Kippur, God didn't ask for any extended mourning periods, and he didn't ask for any of these four fasts Zechariah mentions, including Tisha B'Av. Yom Kippur is mandated by the Torah. Its purpose is to give us a 25-hour period during which we need to concentrate on how we live our lives and what more we need to do to improve our behavior and get on with our mission to help create a better, more just, more equitable, more caring tomorrow for the entire world. But when it comes to memorializing past tragedies, the Torah has nothing to say. The Amalekites committed an atrocity of such great magnitude against the Israelites on their march from Egypt to Sinai that the Torah declares that we're to be at war with Amalek until the last Amalekite is gone. They're gone, by the way. Apparently, the Amalekites attacked the people at the rear of the march, meaning the elderly, the infirm, the little children, anyone who couldn't keep up with everyone else. But the Torah does not create an annual day of fasting and mourning in memory of that outrage. In Egypt, at one point in the enslavement, the Pharaoh at that time ordered the drowning of every male Israelite newborn. We have no idea how many infants were drowned because of that order, but we also were not told to set aside a day each year to fast and mourn for them. From what Zechariah tells us, these victimization fasts came about because the people created them, not because God asked for them. Zechariah does quote God, however, about what the future will be for these four fasts. Quote, they will become occasions for joy and gladness, happy festivals, unquote. The Babylonian sage Rav Papa explains what that means. Quote, in times of peace, these days will be for joy and gladness. If it's a time when there's government persecution, they'll be fast days. If there's no government persecution and no peace, those who wish to do so may fast, while those who do not wish to do so don't fast, unquote. In our day, then, three of these fasts are optional in Rav Papa's view, including yesterday's fast. The only exception should be Tisha B'Av, not just because tradition says the temple was destroyed that day, but also because so many other calamities have occurred on Tisha B'Av throughout history. The same holds true for all the mourning rituals imposed during the three weeks and the nine days, or more accurately, the eight days that precede Tisha B'Av. The sages, in fact, limited these rituals to only a few days, and even that isn't exactly clear. Says the Talmud, quote, During the week in which the ninth of Av occurs, it is forbidden to cut the hair and to wash clothes, unquote. The most restrictive rules in the Talmud relate only to the day before Tisha B'Av. And even then, these rules aren't as restrictive as we now have them. Quote, On the eve of Tisha B'Av, one does not eat meat or drink wine, unquote. That would suggest that neither meat nor wine were proscribed until the day before Tisha B'Av. Not for the entire nine days before Tisha B'Av, but that rule itself is limited to the final meal before the fast in any case. It doesn't apply earlier in the day, such as during lunch, which means meat and wine would be okay at that meal. What all this amounts to is this. 
The period known as the three weeks is a stringency that's not highly regarded by God, according to Zechariah, doesn't appear to be supported by the practice of our sages and some of the early rabbis who followed them, and even the fast of the 17th of Tammuz would seem to be at best an option, if not back then, certainly in our day, at least based on Rav Papa's rules. Perhaps then, this is how we should approach these days as well. Tishabav, on the other hand, is in another category, and it should be. If we follow the Torah's chronology of the Exodus, it was very likely on the second Tishabav after leaving Egypt that God decreed that the Israelites would spend the next 38 years in the wilderness as punishment for their thinking that he had lied to them. Moses had sent 12 scouts to check out the land of Canaan and report back to the people that it was indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. All 12 said it was exactly that. They even showed a large cluster of grapes to prove it. But 10 of the 12 also said it was a land populated by merciless giants and its towns were surrounded by insurmountable fortifications. The people panicked. They were convinced that God had lied to them, that he had brought them out of Egypt in order to have them die at the hands of those merciless giants. And so the Torah tells us, the people cried all that night. And so, God sentenced the Israelites to wander in the wilderness for another 38 years. He didn't tell us, however, that we have to observe that day every year as a day of mourning and fasting. The gift of hindsight, the rabbis of the Talmud concluded that God must have issued another decree that day as well, quote, Because you, Israel, cried for no reason on this day, I, God, will see to it that you have reason to cry on this day forever after, unquote. Fanciful as that rabbinic midrash may be, nevertheless, we've had reason to cry on that day forever after. Tisha B'Av through the ages has been a day of great tragedy for the Jewish people, and not just because the two temples were destroyed around that date. It was reportedly on Tisha B'Av in the year 135 CE that the Judean revolt against Rome came to a crushing end. It was followed by a series of executions that would wipe out nearly an entire generation of religious leaders and scholars, including the famed Rabbi Akiva. On July 18, 1290, on the Julian calendar, July 25th on the Gregorian calendar we now use, Edward I signed an order expelling the Jews from England. July 18, 1290 was Tisha B'Av. On August 2nd, 1492, according to the Julian calendar, August 11th on the Gregorian, the greatest diaspora community the world had ever known until then came to an end with the departure from Spain of the last of its expelled Jews. August 2nd, 1492 was Tisha B'Av. Columbus, by the way, set sail that same day, but the significance of that is for a podcast in October, God willing. On August 1st, 1914, Germany declared war on Russia. World War I had begun. It would set into motion events that would lead to the creation of the Soviet Union, which would wage a 75-year campaign to destroy everything Jewish within its borders. The war would end in the creation of a peace so debilitating to Germany that its people became easy prey to the nationalistic rantings of Adolf Hitler. It would also allow Britain and France to play their duplicitous games in the Middle East, sowing the seeds for nearly nine decades' worth of bloody conflict between Arab and Jew. August 1st, 1914, was Tisha B'Av. There are lots of other examples. Tisha B'Av is not a day to toss aside. It's not a day to ignore. Not because it memorializes these tragedies, because Tisha B'Av is not now nor ever has been about tragedy. Tisha B'Av is about triumph. No generation of Jews should know this better than we do. We are here today, 75 years after the destruction of European Jewry. Revived and alive. 
75 years after we should have been dead and buried, we find ourselves living in an age that has been the most productive in Jewish history in so many ways. 75 years after 6 million Jews died because no state would have them, the reborn Jewish state thrives, ready to rescue entire communities of endangered Jews, such as those from Ethiopia and Syria and the former Soviet Union, and able to send an elite unit thousands of miles away to Entebbe Airport to rescue a plane load of Jews facing death at the hands of terrorists, an event that occurred just 11 days before the start of the three weeks in 1976. 75 years after the doors of the world shut in our faces, there are few doors left that we can't open. Of course, Tisha B'Av reminds us that we've experienced more tragedies as a people than any other in history. That alone should make it a day to be observed because, in truth, it's the only day on the calendar when we should immerse ourselves fully in grief over the tragedies of the past. It's the substitute for having to mourn every day of every year for the tragedy that befell us on any particular day. The point, however, isn't that the tragedies happen, but that we're still here to be reminded of them. We're still here. No other day on the Jewish calendar better exemplifies the link between God and Israel. After all the tragedies God in Leviticus warns us will befall us throughout history if we abandon him, all of which have befallen us, God says this, quote, And I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and my covenant with Isaac, and even my covenant with Abraham will I remember, and I will remember the land. No other day better proves that God's promise to Israel, his covenant with us, is indeed everlasting and irreversible. That's the real memory of Tisha B'Av. Please don't forget this day, not this year, not any year. Don't toss into the dustbin of disuse this most potent vehicle for reaffirming that tragedies are of the moment, but the Jewish people are forever. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear from you about this and my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org and email me, please. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Stay safe.